Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can take it and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we dive into our final message in a series that began way back at the beginning of October in 2021, a series through First and 2 Thessalonians titled Living, Waiting, and Enduring for Jesus. We come to the final few verses of this book and the final few verses of our series as we look uh, eagerly ahead to uh, Lord willing as we're able to meet together next week a sermon series through the book of of Joseph and uh, talking about the the purposes of God in the land of affliction and uh, trust you'll be able to to be here for that. um, I'll be able to preach the first message of that series uh, next Sunday, and then uh, the Sunday after that, I'll actually be out of town. I'm doing a wedding for uh, uh, some family members of ours in Nebraska, so I'll be gone, but our own Brandon Howard will be taking up the, the preaching responsibilities for that Sunday, so uh, look, forward to, um, look forward to the weeks ahead. And then, of course, with Easter in there, we've got, got a little bit of a break before we get back into the book, uh, the, the life of Joseph, but... That kind of gives you a heads up on to where we're going, but uh, before we get to all that, we need to finish off um, our series in First and Second Thessalonians. And you'll find uh, ourselves—we find ourselves this morning in Second Thessalonians chapter three, and uh, beginning in verse thirteen. This is kind of a, a, the tail end of what we talked about last week, but important to look at, and then the final uh, three verses as well, where Paul says this: "As for you, brothers." Don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that is indeed what we want as we come to the end of this. We want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with us as we look at these things. As I look around at the world today, uh, one thing I think that's, that's desperately needed in our, in our communities, in our culture, uh, and in our churches, is I see a need for Christians who are doing what the title of this series has been. Christians who are living, waiting, and enduring for Jesus. Uh, just the other day, I was, I was reading in the book of Jude. And, uh, and, and, and the purpose of the book of Jude, if you're not familiar with it's just a one-chapter book uh, at the end of the New Testament. But the purpose of the book of Jude is to exhort the reader to contend for the faith. And really contending for the faith in the midst of a world that is, is more and more seeing ungodly um, people creep into the church. And these people are actually perverting the grace of God and rejecting the authority of Jesus. So, so Jude is writing and even says, as time goes on, this is going to happen more and more. Ungodly people are going to creep into the church. They're going to pervert the grace of God. And they're going to reject the authority of Jesus Christ. And he, 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 uh, he's really exhorting them to contend for the faith. And in light of these, what we could call grace perverters, Jude tells them at the end of the book, really kind of the main idea of what he wants them to do. And it's in uh, Jude and verses 20 and 21, where he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most, your most holy faith, in praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
And I bring this verse up because it's a very common theme to what we've been talking about here. We have the, the living for Jesus in the, when he says you need to build yourselves up, you need to be praying. That's the living. That's the living side. Build yourselves up. Pray in the Holy Spirit. We have the, the waiting side, right, when he says waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have the enduring side, when we, where we endure by keeping ourselves in the love of God. So even Jude really picks up on a lot of the same themes that we've been talking about through this whole series. And I bring that up just to say again that this isn't just one author with this thing in mind, but it's really, it, really, it really kind of, kind of uh, covers the whole New Testament. A, a, constant, a constant exhortation that because of what's coming and because of the end times, we ought to live, wait, and endure for Jesus. Jesus Christ being our prime focus. And I like how Jude says to keep yourself in the love of God. Because it's actually something Paul picks up on here in, in verse 13 where he says, uh, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. You know, keep, keep yourselves in the love of God. Don't grow weary in doing good. It all kind of centers this, around this idea of Christians who are enduring in the face of ungodly people who are creeping into the church, perverting the grace of God, and rejecting the authority of Jesus. And so he's encouraging the saints. And, and Paul here in our, in our final passage is encouraging the saints not to grow weary in doing good. Don't bow out. Keep enduring. Things are going to get harder. And they will. We must endure. We must live, wait, and endure for our Lord Jesus. Now just to, just to bring us up to, to where we are in verse 13, if you remember, if you were with us last week, and if you weren't, that's fine. But in this section, it began back in chapter 3, verse 6. Remember, Paul is exhorting the church uh, to forsake the sin of idleness and to walk in holiness. And so he's, he's you know, the, and walk in obedience. And in this case, remember, it talks about if you don't, uh, he gave this rule, if you're not willing to work, you should not eat. And so he's, he's exhorting them to, to get to work, to earn their own food. And to not be someone who is idle, someone unwilling to work, someone who's, a, who's a not busy at work, but instead is a, is a busy body. And all of this has to do with, really, the return of Christ, as we've seen throughout this. Is it's all centered on Paul getting what the return of Christ looks like. When you get that right, it, it helps us in our day-to-day lives. So this morning, as we jump into these final verses, uh, Paul gives... Three final encouragements as we live, wait, and endure for Jesus. Three final encouragements as we live, wait, and endure for Jesus. Especially in light of his return, as has been the theme of the book. And the first one is to remain in good works. Remain in good works. As for you, brothers. Okay, so now he's talking to those who aren't committing the sin of being idle. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Okay, he's writing to the faithful Christians of the church in, in this exhortation, just don't grow weary in doing good. Because Paul realized something. Okay, doing good as a Christian is something that we can tire of doing. We can grow weary in doing good in our Christian lives. And perhaps you've experienced that. Perhaps you are experiencing it. Where you're just weary, and not weary because of trials, you're just weary of doing good. 
It was almost this idea where, where Paul is almost confronting the idea of, of, of these people who look at other people and say, well, if they're living that way, well, why can't I? And that's, that's where weariness a lot of times comes from, is the Christian begins to look out and says, well, other Christians are living this way, or, or the culture is living this way, and, and if they're living this way and they seem to be getting along just fine, why can't I live that way? And grow weary in doing good. And so whether it's the pressures of society that cause us to wonder if it's worth following Jesus, when it even comes with the risk of being a social outcast, doing good can become wearisome. And again, that Paul even writes these words reminds us of the reality in which we live. We grow weary and we often grow weary in doing good. And Paul here is saying, don't let the sin of a few disrupt the whole church, the faithfulness of the whole church. Doing good is a good thing. Uh, other verses uh, you, you can make note of, if you'd like, is, is 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Paul says something similar there. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, neighbor, your labor is not in vain. In Galatians chapter nine, uh, Galatians chapter six, verses nine and ten, Paul says, "And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith." It's a weary thing, and 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 it's best that when we grow weary, we know what to do, which is what we're going to talk about here in just a moment. But it's the reality. And Paul is saying, remain in good works. Don't grow weary in doing good. Now, there was a time in my life where not only did I grow weary in doing good, I grew so weary of doing good, I just gave up doing good. And it happened my senior year in high school when I got my first, basically my first full-time job. And um, out of all the different jobs I've worked since being a senior in high school, I, that, that first job that I got right out of high school, I had never been so pressured, made fun of, whatever you want to say about being a Christian than I was there. And this was kind of my first real experience of being in the, you know, living in the real world. And I remember day after day after day, and, you know, we got a, it was more annoying than it was anything else, but day after day after day, getting called certain names for being a Christian, trying to be a Christian, living by Christian standards, it just continued to wear on me. And for a while, I thought I was doing like a good thing, you know, standing up and not giving in and all this stuff. But soon, I grew really weary of doing good and being, you know, the Mr. Good Christian or, or whatever it is. And as I said, eventually, not only did I grow weary of doing good, I had given up doing good. And said, if, if, there's, if there's a life where I don't have to deal with this, and all I have to do is give in on a few things, then I'll do it. And maybe you've been there and maybe you are there. But had it not been for the grace of God, what turned out to be a few months of giving up could have been disastrous for my whole life. Now, if I were to give you an autopsy of the spiritual heart of Zach Fisher, his senior year in high school, as he was facing these things, or if I were to give you an autopsy of, of, of a Christian weary of doing good, I think, and while it could be multifaceted in a lot of ways, I think I could point out one thing that is true 
of every Christian that not only grows weary in doing good, but grows weary in doing good to the point that they give up. And it's this. My life at that time was a life of Christian works without the Christian Jesus. My life at that time was a life of Christian works and doing Christian good things without the Christian Jesus. It was a life void of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. You know the verse. Uh, Hebrews 12, uh, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why should we consider the Lord Jesus and his suffering and what he endured? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Christian works without the Christian Jesus lead to growing weary and doing good and will lead you eventually to just give up. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The only way we continue on resisting sin is not to have a system of good works, although those are good, that's a good thing. It's not just to have a system of what it looks like to be a Christian or impressing the church or making sure you're, 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 obey, or you're you know, looking good for your family, although those are good things too. But any Christian work without the Christian Jesus is going to lead to this, or not lead to this, is going to lead to what I just described in my own life. Christian works without the Christian Jesus is what leads to a weariness. It's a weary life indeed when you try to keep up good works, but you don't try to keep up your relationship with Jesus. It's a weary life indeed doing a life of Christian works without keeping yourself, like Jude says, in the love of God. It's a weary life indeed when you've got all the works you want to do, all the works you're supposed to do, even if they're good. But you never consider Jesus and his sufferings for you, and they're detached. So when we look to Jesus, we find endurance. And maybe that's you this morning. You're, you're growing weary of doing good. You're trying to keep up what you've been taught from your family. You've been trying to keep up to what you think would please the pastor or please the church or whatever it might be. And you've got all these things that you know you should be doing or you shouldn't be doing. And you've got an image you know you're supposed to protect or whatever it might be. And you're, just, you're doing all the Christian works, but you're growing weary. And you, you, sometimes you just have to stop and ask yourself, do I have all the Christian works but not the Christian Jesus? Is my mind no longer on considering who Jesus is and what he did for me? So the first encouragement this morning is to remain in good works. But in order to remain in good works, you've got to remain, you've got to keep your mind, you've got to consider the one who endured such hostility, the Lord Jesus. Here's the second one. The second encouragement I have for you this morning as we close out this series, Living, Waiting, and Enduring for Jesus, is that all of us need to respond to Scripture humbly. And I'll tell you what I mean by that as we go through verses 14 and 15. Now again, Paul here, he, he, he's telling them, don't grow weary in doing good. And then he moves on to, he is then now going to say, uh, you know, he's going to give instructions about what to do when there's someone in the church who claims the name of Jesus as a member of the church and they just simply reject him. And it's in verses 14 and 15, okay? So 14 and 15. So he's talking to the faithful in the church and how they should relate to the disobedient in the church. And what Paul is describing here is a disciplinary process for the idol. 
for the idle members of the church. Now remember, we talked about idle last week. It doesn't just mean lazy. That's part of it. But it means you're, you're kind of disorderly. It means you're, you're not busy at work, so you're a busy body. You're a nuisance. You're, you don't have business of your own to worry about, so you get in everybody else's business. And it kind of creates this, uh, this nuisance sort of living where you're dependent on everybody else to provide for you instead of you providing for yourself through work. So it's kind of the whole package there. So he's telling the church now, these idle people in the church, here's how the church should respond. But there's something you have to get about the context before we get into this verse. Okay, this is very, very important when it comes to thinking how we relate to people who are sinning or in a life of sin in the church. Because by the time Paul lays out these verses... The, the idle people in the Thessalonian church would have rejected, number one, the in-person teaching of Paul. We learned that back in verse 10. Paul says, for when we were with you, we gave you this command. Okay? So they would have rejected the in-person teaching of Paul. They would have rejected the in-person example of Paul. That's what Paul says in verse 7. When we were with you, we gave you this example. So they would have rejected the in-person teaching of Paul when he was there, the in-person example of Paul. They would have rejected... Uh, Paul's first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11 and following, Paul tells them the commands that they are to work. They're not supposed to be idle. So they would have rejected Paul's in-person teaching. They would have rejected Paul's in-person example. They would have, by this point, rejected the first letter that Paul wrote to them. Not only that, they would have, by this point, also rejected the church's admonition. Uh, remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, was it verse 13, 14, 12 through 14 in there, Paul says, admonish the idol. So assuming that the church obeyed the command and, and admonished the idol, the idle people by this point would have also rejected people in the church admonishing them, saying, hey, you shouldn't live an idle life. But not only that, Paul also anticipates by, that by this time, they also would have rejected Paul's second letter. Right? So they would have read this letter, and the idea is, if they still disobeyed and continued to live in sin, so just think about that. By this point, over the space of several months, these idle people would have rejected Paul's in-person teaching, Paul's in-person example. They would have rejected and refused to obey the first letter. They would have rejected and refused to listen to the admonishment of the church. And they would have refused and rejected now the second letter. And so Paul says, after all that rejection of authoritative teaching from God... And over a period of time that established a lifestyle of idleness, the church was to personally discipline, discipline these people. I like how Warren Rearsby defines church discipline. He says, church discipline is to the church member what family discipline is to a child. It is an exercise of and evidence of correcting love. When a parent disciplines his child, he is not a judge punishing a criminal. He is a loving father seeking to make his child a better person. So what's being described here is an all-church rescue mission. This wasn't something for the pastors or some church disciplinary committee. It was for the whole church. And the first thing, there's three steps in this. Okay, and I just want to explain these, uh, explain these uh, make sure we get a good understanding of this before we move on. The first step is that they were supposed to take note of them, or they were to mark them. They were supposed to mark the person. Now, I don't think what Paul is saying is like, like every Sunday they had this huge whiteboard on stage. And on the whiteboard it had everybody's name on there who was, you know, living in some sort of idleness or anything like that. So when he says take note of that person, I don't think he's saying go publish a list of all the people in the church that, you know, you think should, should be on that list. 
think what he's talking about is you just you mark them in your mind. After, again, after all those five things that we just talked about, they've already rejected. They're living a, a patterned life of sin. It's obvious. It's clear. You mark them in your minds. The rebellious idlers in the church. And that's what it means. It just means to mark them. And remember, this isn't some hasty conclusion. It's after they rejected the in-person teaching of Paul, the example of Paul, the first letter of Paul, the admonition of the church, and the rejection, or what would become, a rejection of the second letter of Paul. And then, and only then, after the general observance of consistent rebellion, the church was to mark them in their minds as rebellious. The second thing you're supposed to do is avoid them. So take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. So that's the second step. The church was to avoid them. And what this means is Paul isn't saying they need to leave the church, so there's still going to be some contact here. But what Paul is saying is there needs to, there needs to be some sort of disconnect. There needs to be no more close relationship. Uh, it's important to note that this is not the same as excommunication from Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is, where Jesus says you actually do get to a point of removing somebody from membership and you treat them like a, a tax collector, a pagan, a Gentile, someone who's an enemy of the cross. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's just saying there's, the aim here is not total exclusion. Paul is, is telling them don't get mixed up with those types of people because sin spreads. And also because if you're a friend, friend gives approval. To be a friend with somebody, if you're still having a really close relationship, uh, the idea there is they're probably going to think that the way they're living is just fine. So he's saying that there needs, needs to be some sort of withdrawal of intimate friendship with the person. The relationship was not to be on the same level of close friend. This probably meant that they weren't really hanging out for dinner sort of thing. Now you're probably saying to yourself, wow, that seems really harsh and could really bring a lot of shame on somebody. And the answer is that's actually the point. That this sort of disapproval is supposed to make the point that, yes, this is, this is serious. For a follower of Jesus to say they're a follower of Jesus and live nothing like Jesus and reject five different approaches, if we could use that word, of, of somebody coming to them and saying, hey, this is how you should live like Jesus, to do all that is to, is to, really, to really kind of show that they aren't interested in, in following Jesus. And so Paul is saying for the, for the person who is idle... There's supposed to be a little bit of a disconnect here. And again, the goal is restoration. The goal is rescue from sin. Sin is dangerous. It's destructive. It's defiling. It's damning. And it's not something to be taken lightly. And neither is church discipline. So remember, the church is acting in a way against a follower of Jesus who shows no consistent pattern of being a follower of Jesus. Again, they've refused to listen to the in-person teaching of Paul, to follow the example of Paul. They've rejected the first letter. They've rejected the church's admonition. They've rejected the second letter. And so this is what they're supposed to do. The church was called to show some sort of action against those people that showed they, they weren't living in the right way. It's, it's shame, but it's not shame. A lot of times when we shame somebody, what's it for? We shame somebody to, to we, we try to insult them or, or injure them in some way so that we can be personally gratified. That's not what this is. This isn't insult or injury for the personal pleasure of the church. It's meant to produce positive change. 
It's meant to cause the rebellious idler, idler to look out. To look, the, the idea is they, they look out and see the disapproval of the congregation. They look in and they realize their own sin and their own wanderings. And then they look up in confession and restoration of, with the Lord Jesus. Because here's the third step. Not only you mark them, you avoid them. Okay, that, that, that level of close friendship goes away, at least temporarily, until they repent. But then it says, but notice what he says here, do not regard him as an enemy. So this isn't, again, this isn't, you're not treating him as an enemy of the cross. You're not even treating him as an enemy of Jesus. He says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Notice the word brother. When Jesus says you, you kick someone out of the church, you treat them not like a brother, you treat them like somebody who is an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of the cross. But here, you're, you're still treating them like a brother, still in the church, still in the church membership. Now, the human nature tends to take words like Paul's to the extreme. So what Paul does here is he cautions the church. Don't just go to the extreme on this stuff. Don't regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. An enemy is hated. An enemy is unwelcome. The church wasn't to harbor any sort of hostility towards the brother or sister in sin. Instead, they were to admonish them. The word admonish, if you want to know what the word admonish means, it comes from a, it comes from a word uh, that, that means to, to place into the mind. And so, I mean, this is, this is what I do. This is what Pastor Matt and Pastor Kyle do. This is what many of you do when you're giving counsel to other people. You're, you're taking the truth of God and you're, you're putting the truth of God into the mind. And that's what he's saying here. Continue to, to put the truth of God into this person's mind. Patiently. We have the tendency to mark someone too hastily, avoid people in hostility, and warn people, warn people really lazily. That's our tendency. Our tendency is to mark someone too hastily, avoid people in hostility, and warn people lazily. And one safeguard against this, and one safeguard against what I mentioned about marking someone too hastily, avoiding people in hostility, or warning people lazily, one safeguard is not just take other people's sins seriously, but take your own sin seriously as well. Now, it won't and it shouldn't keep us from obeying God and applying church discipline, but it will be a safeguard for us against doing things too soon. Because here's, another, here's, here's when you know you're doing church discipline, whether it's this form of church discipline or another for, form of church discipline. Here's when you know you're doing it wrong. You've got no problem marking somebody, sinner. You've got no problem avoiding somebody. Just take the next aisle at the grocery store. But when it comes to lovingly and patiently admonishing them, that seems like the most difficult part and the part we often are most unwilling to do. I can mark someone as a sinner, no problem in my mind. doesn't cost me anything. I can avoid someone. doesn't cost me anything. But we know we're doing this wrong when we do all the easy stuff for us, but we don't take any progressive steps to help someone become more like Jesus. So I say respond humbly. So both, both sides need to respond to the word humbly. The church needed to respond humbly to the, the teaching of Paul, to scripture, because notice what he says, obey what we say in this letter. The church needed to respond in humility towards these sinning brothers. And the, of course, the sinning brothers needed to respond humbly as well. 
It's impossible to live, wait, and endure for Jesus if we don't respond in humility to what Scripture is calling us to do. So remember, Paul is, is really talking about these, this case of rebellious idlers. They didn't really take seriously the five things that happened before that. So now Paul is describing a way to, for the church to interact with these people. So no one is exempt from this. No one is exempt from the encouragement to respond to Scripture humbly. We all need to respond to Scripture humbly. And yet there's a third thing that I think is important as we wrap this all up. Because Paul, it's interesting what Paul does here at the end. Notice he says, now, uh, now in, in the, the third encouragement here is to rely on God's enablement. And I say that because in verse 16 it says, now the may, may the Lord of peace himself give you, all of you, peace at all times in every way. May the Lord be with you all. Paul's just saying like, this isn't just for like the faithful. Paul is like, you know, pushing out. I mean, Paul didn't push out the rebellious in this letter here. But Paul, Paul here is, is closing in prayer. Which, by the way, if you wonder why we often end, or always end, a sermon, or we, we end a sermon by closing in prayer, or we close in prayer after a Bible study, it's because we realize we need God's enablement to do, enablement to do what we just talked about doing. And so we close in prayer and we ask God to help us. When we do a Bible study, we close in prayer to ask God to help us. We need God's help to walk in a way that God's word says. The Thessalonian church needed God's help. Everyone needed God's help. The the sinners needed God's help. Those who are walking in obedience needed God's help because they still had a sinful nature. Everyone needed God's help. Everyone needed God's peace. Everyone needed God's words. Everyone needed God's grace. Everyone needed God's enablement. And he starts off here with uh, peace. I mean, the Lord of peace. We get peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ provides the peace we need with God because all of us are just sinful. And our sin continues to show up even after we're saved, but we all have a sinful nature. And so he, he goes to the Lord of peace who they trust in. Jesus, the Lord of peace, he establishes peace between God and sinners through his death. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul prays that they would be at peace with God. But not just that, but they would have that experiential, notice what he says in verse 16, that experiential peace. May, may the Lord of peace himself, okay, so you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have peace with God. So you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, and may he give you peace at all times in every way. This peace is not a change in circumstances. It's an inner peace, an inner calm that comes through the presence of Jesus Christ. It's an experiential peace in day-to-day life. Paul's praying for an inner peace, an inner calm that comes with and only with having peace with God. It's a peace that you can't get from yoga, you can't get from Zen, you can't get from anything else. You get it through the Lord Jesus Christ and it pervades your entire life. You need the peace of God. They needed the peace-producing presence of Christ. And in order to have the peace-producing presence of Christ, you need the presence of Christ. And many of you this morning are even alienated from God because you don't have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body will still die, the Spirit gives you life, and you have peace with God. 
and that peace carries you through. And there's one final thing I want to note here as we wrap up, and it's in verse 17, where Paul says, I write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in all, every letter of mine, because uh, it is the way I write. Paul wrote the word, and just one more word on the word of God. Part of God's enablement comes through God's peace that he gives to us through our Lord Jesus, but the other part is the word of God. Paul understood it to be the authority, and even he wrote to the, he wrote to the Thessalonians in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the Thessalonian church was commended for their reception of the word, and I just want to commend you in the same way. Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the very words of God. And I bring this up because whether or not the word of God is at work in us depends on this. Have we simply received the word with our ears as words of men? Or have we convictionally accepted the words of God in our hearts as those very words, the words of God? Now I would ask you this question as we close. Is the word of God at work in you right now? Is the word of God at work within you right now? Because perhaps you view your view of the Bible functionally is more about what you think you remember hearing as a kid when you were at church, or maybe it's what you think you remember hearing your parents say about the Bible, or maybe it's some Bible you created just on your own, on your own whim. And functionally, the Word of God isn't at work within you. Because in reality, you're living by a Bible that you've pieced together from what you've heard in the past, from what you've heard in the family but it's not actually the word of God. And I think this is why so many Christians have trouble coming and reading the word of God. Or when they do read it, they just don't get it. It's because we can become so clouded in what we think the Bible says or what we think the Bible should say or what we think we heard pastor so-and-so say at one time or what our parents taught us when we grew up that we don't, when we come to read the Bible, the, the Bible we're reading is so much different than the Bible we have in our minds and it just makes no sense. And, I, and I'm saying all this because when Paul closes this, he, he's talking about this letter. This, this, is, this is God's enablement right here, the word of God. First of all, faith in Jesus Christ when we have peace with God and God uses his word. We need the word of God. We need peace with God. And as we come to the end of this book, all this is about that Jesus, the Jesus who is the Christ, who is Jesus who is coming again. That's been the theme. Jesus is coming. He is coming soon. And if we're not around for his return, then we know as Christians we're almost home. So as we close this, close with these final encouragements and take them as your very own, that you would remain in good works, even with all the troubles that you have and all the troubles you face, that you would respond to Scripture humbly, no matter what it's calling you to do, and you would rely on God's enablement. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for First and Second Thessalonians. Thank you for the Thessalonian church. Thank you for their example to us. But Lord, it's not just some you know, dead, gone church 2,000 years ago, but the words written to them are alive and active and sharp for us even now. And uh, God, I just pray that as we, as your followers, wait for Jesus to return, that you would help us to remain in good works, that we would respond to your word in humility 
And God, that you would just help us to rely on your enablement, the peace that we have with you through Christ, the words that you've given us in each every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.